This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Dr. Kamyar Azizadanashelli is a postdoctorate scholar at Caltech. He will be joining Purdue University as an assistant CS professor in fall 2020. Dr. Aziza Denishelli, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks, uh, Robin, for having me today. So you have some uh, a lot of really great papers. We just we just chose three to to focus on today. That is uh, efficient exploration through Bayesian deep Q networks, uh, surprising negative results for generative adversarial tree search, and maybe a few considerations in reinforcement learning research. Yeah, great. Uh, they, they they sound great to me. So before this interview, I I got to hear. Um, a podcast interview you did actually a year ago on Twimmel AI podcast. Uh, and you also touched on two of these papers during that podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing your, your interview. I learned a lot from that. Um, I would just say for the listeners, uh, this podcast is a little bit different because what I wanted, I want to try to be, um, more in touch with the research, uh, try to read the, read some of the papers, the relevant papers before the interview. Uh, so we can have a little more deeper discussion. Yeah, that uh, sounds great to me. And uh, since last year, there have been many more uh, research coming out from different labs uh, like uh, related to these topics. So that, uh, that would be great to talk about those as well. Yeah, I mean, just in general, I think the amount of RL research being published is really getting out of control. Like I've seen some of these charts uh, in terms of the topics that are covered at the major ML conferences and RL is just shooting up ex- exponentially. How do we keep track of what's happening in the field when so much research is coming out? Well, uh, that's a really, really great question that uh, uh, makes the progress a little bit harder for for uh, people, I mean, the researchers in the field, because um, we can't keep track of many works. But uh, at the same time, there are many... Uh, good wheels and like great people, they try to abstract out those, like they try to provide the abstract of the papers they read and put it online. And instead of you reading those papers, you probably can uh, read those abstracts. And if you, you, you see that they are interesting to you, you would go and read them. Obviously, this is gonna be, a, it's not gonna be a good. Or, I mean, it's not going to be optimal way of handling this situation, but it's going to be at least something better than doing nothing and ignoring many papers. Uh, but uh, to be honest, I also have a hard time, like, uh, keep tracking many papers, and I have a list of papers that I'm, I need to read, and this list doesn't go down. It just keeps increasing, and, like, now it's, like, becoming more than 100. And uh, it's, uh, it's a problem that don't, I think I don't know a good solution to it, but there is a remedy, which is like uh, great people, they put abstracts of those works out there, and I just look at those sometimes. Or my friends, uh, I have, thankfully, uh, during my PhD, I made a ton of great friends, uh, mainly in the theoretical aspect of machine learning, and uh, also in practical, like, among practitioners. And they also are really nice people, and they, they kindly let me know what paper I should read. And these are like really great things, but we don't know how to. I, I personally don't know how to solve this issue of like exploding number of papers out there. So I, I'm. It seems to me that 
Some of these papers we can safely ignore, and other papers that really change your perspective when you just when you even read them for the first time. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> quite agree with you, and this is one of the uh, sections in the paper I wrote. I mean, the position paper I wrote uh, that you mentioned as the third paper I'm, we are going to talk about. Maybe a few consideration in reinforcement learning research. Well, in that uh, section, I, I do not. I don't talk about. How we can uh, deal with many many papers, but I say we can reduce the number of papers we write because of many reasons. Uh, as we all know, reinforcement learning is uh, a field of research that is really really expensive in the sense of uh, intellectuality and uh, time and money costs everything. If you want to publish a reinforcement learning paper or you want to have a contribution in the field. Even a simple theoretical like uh, innovation takes a lot of time from you. If you are a theorist, it might take half a year from you to to analyze and provide a great understanding for an uh, RL algorithm. Even if you are a practitioner, it might take you like uh, again half a year to do the empirical study. But this is not uh, quite the case for like other uh, topics and fields in machine learning, like supervised learning. I personally wrote a, um, a really interesting, from my point of view, paper in uh, supervised learning and domain adaptation that I spent one weekend on it to, to write the whole paper and also the theoretical analysis of it. And also my friends after that helped me to do uh, to do empirical study for that. But the whole process didn't take like like a lot of time. But... At the same time, I was working on another work paper and a reinforcement learning that took me like half a year to just provide provide a really good, satisfying understanding of uh, what is happening. So uh, since uh, reinforcement learning is quite costly and uh, we don't have that many researchers working on reinforcement learning, despite the fact that you said there are many people who are working on it, we still need more. But it, this, given the fact that we have this few people working on reinforcement learning, compared to the number of people we need to, to work on reinforcement learning, it's better to manage what you want to do, what are the problems you want to solve, and uh, make sure that uh, if you have an idea, we think a lot before, like, deploying it. If, if we want to do empirical study, we should uh, think a little bit more and like, design some hypothesis for ourselves and test them by ourselves before like running extensive stu- like empirical study. I can give you many examples of uh, existing RL, or even like general RL algorithms that they fail easily and miserably for two-state MDP and two actions. But uh, the, the authors could avoid doing it by just spending a little bit of time to like reevaluate their algorithm. Yeah, so, so my general point is like we need to spend more time on uh, thinking deeper in uh, reinforcement learning research. And since we have a limited budget, and by budget I mean like human time, it's better to to co- cooperate and collaborate with each other and get a uh, get a like uh, more direct development in the field. Okay, so maybe getting a bit more into that, um, I've I've noticed in in machine learning there's many different formats of papers. Like some some uh, authors really have a clear hypothesis when they start, and some don't. And um, in, in in general, what do you think really makes a, an excellent paper in RL? What what needs to be there to make an excellent paper? Um, 
an excellent paper from my point of view is a paper which which has something in it that uh, that I when I understand I am like or I learn about it I would be like excited if it's a if if the paper is a theoretical paper is it talks about the theory of RL excellent if they provide a really great understanding of some algorithms I would be excited if it's a scientific paper in the sense that they put out some hypothesis that I care about and they test that hypothesis that and like, by testing I, I don't mean like running one experiment it's like extensively testing the hypothesis when you test a hypothesis like empirically you need to like try variety of different uh, settings and uh, make sure that you literally tested that hypothesis not just saying okay I did one experiment and something happened so I tested my hypothesis so that's not a good thing but if you have a if you put out a hypothesis and test it that would be really great to me the third thing as you said if let's imagine the paper does not have any hypothesis but what it does it tests or it uh, like reports a set of great empirical study and put them all out okay, and just tells me hey we ran this one that's the thing they ran is like the, or the, the empirical study that they provide is the thing I was thinking maybe it would be interesting to see what would happen and if they provide this set of experimental study that would be uh, really interesting to me but if the paper so this is it since in reinforcement learning we don't know that much and it hasn't been extensively studied um if a paper provided great understanding what is happening i would love to read that paper if the paper says okay we did this tweak and uh, we outperformed something i wouldn't care much uh, about it but i i also read i also like that paper because it adds non-negative amount of information to me uh, but um, yeah but if uh, the goal is to provide a better understanding I love I would love uh, I would love it more but if it's uh, just climbing the ladder of like uh, leaderboard in the scores uh, whatever that means uh, I don't even know what this term means in RL which I talk about it in uh, that uh, position paper saying uh, what does it mean like, to climb ladder of uh, leaderboard in RL but if we, but the paper does not provide that much of understanding or the empirical say is not exciting I wouldn't be excited about that paper so you're not against empirical papers oh I love empirical papers like the one of the reason that RL has been a center of attention for many many young old like a prestigious and uh, junior researcher in last few years was uh, the, the excitement in the empirical study. And uh, when these empirical studies were out, like, let's put it this way. Now, if the, if, so we can have, uh, we can push like science and theory this way. We can say, okay, practitioners, you should not do anything before the theories prove what we should do. Okay, then this way, uh, we, we, the, 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 since the theory is a little bit hard, it takes a lot of time to like make some progress. But if you leave the, if you ask practitioners, hey, I'm, I'm also like partially practitioner. I, I'm not gonna, I'm not excluding myself from that community. I love that community. 
And if, if uh, practitioners, uh, they start uh, putting intuition and like build intuition and like uh, provide an amazing set of empirical studies, then theorists would uh, gain from this information and like try to, based on what they observe, they try to analyze, it just gives them better clue how to analyze uh, a problem and what would go wrong. Okay, so like the empirical study and the, the results coming out of the practitioners is wonderfully appreciated. <laughs> like, I love them all. But of course, as you said, there are some papers they don't follow the scientific uh, tradition and uh, they do some empirical study. They spend like half a, like $50,000 uh, or one hundred thousand dollars on empirical study that you can easily say, well, it was not like it was quite wrong thing or idea was like flawed uh, by just looking at the idea. But those are like those are happening. Those things that happen. You can't stop a field because some of the some researchers at some point they made some mistakes. We all make mistakes. Like uh, even in theory. Uh, if I call myself a theorist, I also make mistakes. Euler ma made many mistakes, like uh, Fourier in his theorem, he made mistakes. So we all make mistakes, but over time we build on the top of uh, our uh, top of each other and make progress. So one thing I've noticed in RL is like many papers are just looking at one small aspect, and it's it's hard for for me to tell at this point what would be a cutting edge agent if we combined all the insights across all the different state of the art results. What is the real state of the art for a complete agent right now? Once in a while, we get a paper like that. Like I'm thinking, like the Rainbow Paper maybe is an example of that. It wasn't really um, a unique thing, except for just combining things that already existed. Rainbow was um, well. I like it in the sense that it put like many many efforts all together. So all together to see what uh, what is the output. The the thing is. If you look at the works, most of the works before Rainbow or like even after Rainbow, I mean, even my works, when I wrote the BDQN paper, I was, okay, we have DQN or DDQN, and uh, they do Epsilon Greedy for uh, exploration and exploitation uh, to do like sample efficient uh, interaction with them one. And uh, I was like, okay, let's, uh, let's design a method which does a uh, smart uh, way of doing exploration and exploitation. And then I propose a model, which we call it BDQN, and uh, we show that like, if you do exploration exploitation better compared to DQN or DQ, DQN, it's going to uh, perform way better. You would see, like, a colleague of mine says, okay, I have DQN, let's study the effect of, like, uh, uh, the, the, the distribution of samples we gather in the replay buffer. You would see another... And of, or a colleague of mine would say, okay, let's see if we add regularization to the objective function, what would happen? So we, we studied the effect of uh, different components in reinforcement learning algorithm, and we all compared with DQN or DDQN mainly because we are gonna we, we are just we are trying to provide a better understanding. My work is like uh, in let's say BDQN, I repeated many times that by no means I'm comparing the performance of BDQN or DDQN or performance of any algorithm with the program I'm proposing. I'm not doing any comparison or I'm not just, I'm not even comparing any numbers. I'm just trying to provide a better understanding of the algorithm design, algorithm design for reinforcement learning or math. 
our problem. So we have many, many great researchers. They try to uh, provide a better understanding of different components uh, of the personal learning algorithm and uh, to see w w what are the contributions and whether, whether they are actually helping, whether they, are, they don't help, if they help, how much they help, if they don't help, if they degrade the performance, what would happen. And, um, and then Rainbow put all these positive, I mean, Rainbow, I think, did not include BDQN. Uh, I think it came before BDQN. Uh, and they put the good part of like most of these existing algorithms all together and showed that, hey, you said, one researcher said, if we change the replay buffer distribution, it's going to be, it's going to improve the performance. One researcher said, if instead of using the one step return, if you use like a lambda return or like few step return, it's going to improve the performance. Let's put all these things together and see how much everything, all these things together is going to improve. And it was a really cool like, uh, empirical study. And uh, it's also useful for people who are not researchers in the field. If, uh, if you are, uh, let's say, if someone has a company in Bay Area and wants to use reinforcement learning and looks at, let's say, my paper, it says, okay, this paper says do exploration. The other paper says change that component. The other paper says change the other component. But that person, since the, the, it's coming from industry, it doesn't know about what is happening, that person might choose one of these. But Rainbow, what it did was like putting all this together and say, okay, if you can combine all these uh, sources and like, components that we know they are going to help, you're going to get an algorithm which is actually going to work very well. So, and if you're an industry person, you can use that algorithm. So it almost seems like Rainbow could be updated every year with whatever's the latest stuff. Like I think Rainbow didn't have um, IQN in it, for example, the original Rainbow. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I I'm not sure about that, but um, for the like uh, IQN uh, has it or not. But based on the conversation I had with uh, some of the authors, um, their philosophy was yeah, we are it's uh, it can be updated, but they, I don't think they want to update it. But they they want to they wanted to what I think they wanted to show that hey, these are the we people have made during the last few years. If we put them all together, it's going to be this. Of course, if there are many more advancements, if we put those all together, we're going to even improve more. So it was a kind of proof of concept, at least to me, which, uh, well, it's not, it doesn't have that much of scientific value compared to like this improvement in each component, but it's amazing and cool work to, to, to have a proof of concept. What would be your advice for someone doing, say, empirical research uh, based on your position in this paper? Is it, is it, to, um, is it to be more in touch with, with the theory? Uh, no, I do not. Uh, so some people, they require that, hey, every reinforcement learning paper should have theoretical analysis. I strongly against that. It doesn't need to. Like, why? The, 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 we have theoretical work and we have scientific work. Like uh, if you have a scientific work, you don't need to provide theoretical analysis for that. If you provide, like, that would be amazing. But if you don't, it's totally fine, and uh, it's totally. It should be also eased for those papers to be published. Um, if you if you uh, put a requirement for papers, empirical papers, to provide theoretical analysis, and if they don't, then we are gonna miss many great empirical studies. But one uh, thing that I really would love to see more is if I propose an algorithm for reinforcement learning from empirical, like 
it's not a theoretical uh, work, it's like empirical work or a scientific work. I would love to see how the, what are the set settings that uh, this algorithm breaks. Let's say I propose a policy gradient algorithm, a new one, which is uh, totally uh, based on my intuition and there's no theory behind it. And I deploy it on, let's say, Mujuko or uh, this kind of uh, like uh, robotic style um, environment. And I run it, and we know that this, for example, the environment Mujuko, you can change the dynamic of the system, or you can change the cost function, you can, ch you can manipulate all of this. I've seen uh, people like uh, try to do cherry planting and uh, change this the the environment setup and uh, make their algorithm work on this new setup and therefore you can beat everything else but again whatever that means the beating I would also love to see I mean this is amazing research and you showed me that if you change if the environment is has this configuration your algorithm is gonna work very well I also want to see if I if how far you can go away from this configuration and still your algorithm doesn't break. So if you propose an algorithm, you should show me where it works, where it breaks, and if it breaks, what do you think, why it breaks. This, this is uh, the kind of missing point in the literature, and I do not blame the, the authors, I blame the, the, the culture a little bit, because if you add a negative result in your paper, probably you get rejected. You don't get a chance to, to get accepted. You provided a reasonable scientific contribution. So this is one reason why I was surprised and excited to see your paper about the surprising negative results for GATS. So you, you bucked the trend here and you did publish a paper with a negative result. Do you think that there should be more negative result papers? First of all, this paper is not published because it's negative results. Uh, people loved it, but... Uh, uh, it was not fortunate enough to be published, but uh, I just put it on archive for people to use it, and uh, I saw that it had a great effect uh, on the in the society and our community. But regarding your question, uh, yes, I I would love to see negative results, but not of course like you can't come up with negative results uh, like every day to any billion of them. But the negative results that actually was uh, it was it was a hypothesis that we thought many people thought that it would work, and it's an amazing idea to do, and you tried it and it did not work. Okay, for example, in this paper, uh, this, the, my paper in surprise and negative results, I show that if you use if you learn <coughs> sorry if you try to learn the generative model of the Environment. Let's say I have a, I have a reinforcement, I have a reinforcement learning problem. I'm interacting with the with the environment. Through this interaction, I get some rewards and I get a ton of like um, transitions and uh, going from one state to another state. So these are, if you call like these transitions, all these interactions as unsupervised signals or data points. You can uh, learn uh, the, learn the dynamics of the environment using this ton of data. For example, if I interact with the Atari games and if I run it for 200 million steps, like 5% of time or like 1% of time, I might have 
or even less than that. I might get uh, any reward, okay? But I get 200 million interaction or 50 million uh, interaction with the environment. So I could use a tiny portion of that data, th that data I gather to, to learn the dynamics of the environment. In fact, in this paper, we showed that with few thousand uh, interaction, you're able to learn the dynamics of the environment uh, opposed to few hundred million. But doesn't that depend on what part of the environment you're in? Like, like oh, um, absolutely, absolutely. An unskilled absolutely. agent wouldn't be able to learn about the last level. Oh, absolutely. You're totally right. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you learn. So what happens is like you run your agent with like, as I said, not really good agent and you collect data from that environment and you're able to learn the dynamics of the environment and that is that part of the state space. And then if you use that one, you can hopefully enhance your agent and, and the agent is going to discover new part of the state space and then you use that sample to learn the dynamics of the environment. I absolutely agree with you and it doesn't, by learning the dynamics of the mother, I mean with regard that that measure induced by, by, by the agent. And uh, yeah, you can learn the dynamics of the environment and uh, use ideas like uh, uh, use in, ideas used in AlphaGo. You just construct a tree, um, uh, not on the real environment, but the environment you learn, like the genetic model you learn, and you uh, find a good action in that space. Okay. It can, it can be tree, you can follow, you can do policy gradient, whatever you do, you just construct, a, you just do your rollout in the, in the genetic model you use, but of course you're, you do not roll out the genetic model to like few hundred thousand times steps, you just roll out to let's say like few times steps, 10, 20, and use the learn Q function so far in the leaf node. Okay. This uh, idea to me at the beginning when I thought about it, I was like, wait, this is really interesting. And I was, I was able to theoretically guarantee that if you give me a model, like approximation of the, of the environment, and you give me an approximation of the Q function, then I'm, if I use this approach I just told you, I'm able to learn or estimate the Q function better. Okay. Well, I showed it. It's like it was nice, and uh, and it made a total sense to me to use it because at the same time, theoretically, you can show that the DQN agent is like comes up with bias estimation of the Q function. So you would be like, hey, if the Q function I'm using for I'm learning in DQN is biased, and if I use this Monte Carlo tree search approach I just uh, described to you, and if I use this this learned Q function in the leaf node. And if I have a discount factor, which uh, I'm gonna, if I wanna use this Q function in the leaf node, and the leaf node is like in depth of, I don't know, 20, the effect of this bias is gonna be discount factor to the power of 20, so it's gonna disappear soon. So yeah, it's an amazing idea to use. And in fact, uh, uh, there are many papers similar to this paper I, I, I wrote, which they exactly do the same thing, and uh, but uh, after doing many experimental study, I was like, why doesn't uh, outperform even DQN? What is wrong with it? And after spending like, listen, this is uh, crazy. It was I spent like nine months on this paper and just digging why it doesn't work. And after nine months, I was like, hey, let's 
fall back and see what is happening. And I put a hypothesis and check that hypothesis whether it's uh, true or not. And we realized that, hey, this algorithm is doomed to not perform well as long as the, the depth is not high. Uh, yeah. So, so what is then, high? Like you, you, in the paper, you went to depth four, I think. Is that right? Four or five, I guess. Yeah. Four or five? Is yeah. five do you mean five is high or five no, is low? No, no. Five is really low. You, you got to go to depth of like few hundred. Okay, but then but, if you go that deep, will your uh, will errors in your model start to become a problem? Well, that, that's the thing. Yeah, if if you like for AlphaGo, you go really deep. If for Monte, like I think few hundred, four hundred, two hundred. No, I'm not sure about the exact number. If uh, you look at this uh, Monte Carlo research work by I think it was by Satinder, they also do few hundred, uh, but they all do it on the true model they don't do it on they don't learn the model mm -hmm. so they don't have the the problem of the model mismatch and we know theoretically if you go to 200 or 300 like depth and you use the scan factor of like or 100 if you use the scan factor of uh, 0.99 then that depth is actually give is is giving you the optimal solution so you, you went deep enough to find the optimal solution you don't need the q function in leaf node because 0.99 to the power of 200 is almost zero. But um, as you said, if I learn the model and the model has, uh, there's a model mismatch, and uh, if I roll out in that model for 200, it might end up some weird thing or it might saturate. Yeah, absolutely, that can happen. But the point we were making in this paper was like, even if you have a good model, like per not good, perfect model, like you, if you do Monte Carlo sampling, Monte Carlo tree search in, or like policy gradient, whatever, on the true model, but with the short depth, is not going to work. It's doomed to be solved. But now you're saying that if you, we add the model mismatch for the short uh, horizon, so you add more error. So it's not going to help. It's going to degrade the performance. But if you want to do Monte Carlo tree search on the model, but the model is like, and go to depth of 200, well, the current techniques, they are not good enough to, to take care of that. The, the error compounds and uh, it goes to, it saturates and doesn't give us a reasonable thing, re reasonable output, unless we do some, uh, uh, we, we need to do some consideration. We need to make, take some consideration. For example, we, if we discretize, oh, okay, that's actually interesting. Uh, like some of my colleagues, they make this statement that if you learn the model and if you roll out for long, it's not going to work. That's not true. If you work on a, on a tabular MDP, if you have a model mismatch, it's not going to induce any prob like much problem. If your model is epsilon inaccurate, your, uh, your policy is going to be O of epsilon inaccurate. It's not going to be exponentially bad. So uh, if, if you are in tabular M MDP and you have model mismatch, the model mismatch is not going to hurt you too much. Okay, but if you, you if you live in a space of like continuous MDPs and you're using function approximation that might might output things that are outside of the the, the, the domain of the input, then you have problem. Even the model mismatch in continuous MDPs like uh, LQG, the linear quadratic uh, regulator, I guess they call it. But linear models, even in linear models, if you have a model mismatch. It would not cause you that much of a problem if you, you you do roll out in the in the model which is like not accurate enough. But if 
you go beyond that, we don't know much. And when we use function approximation, like deep neural networks, they generate outputs outside of the domain of the states. So then when this happens, like bad event might might happen too. Yeah. Which, which is partly, I think, is the point of your uh, Bayesian deep Q network, right? They know when they're getting outside of their range of what they understand. Uh, so Bayesian deep, deep Q network is... So this work I was talking about, the, the most surprising one, it, it, I was talking about model mismatch. I, but yeah, that's actually a subtle issue. I, I love it. When I say, if, if you are uh, serious in, in uh, reinforcement learning and you work on like model-based RL, you call the environment model. But uh, when you use a function approximation, you call that, fu that function a model. So I think uh, there was a confusion here. Um, by model, I meant like, the, 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 the model of the environment, the dynamics of the environment, but where that one is uh, not accurately estimated. But in Bayesian deep Q network work, the, the model is the Q function. And a uh, Q function can capture the uncertainty, like uh, the, the Q function can, is like, or Q network is supposed to estimate the Q function and there's uncertainty between these two. Yeah, I th okay, so I guess what I'm saying is if GATS had an estimate of its uncertainty on the on the leaf nodes of the Qs, um, would that help or would, is that a completely different issue? Uh, it's would quite a different issue. So for, for GATS, the, the main, the final statement that I was making was, in that paper was, if you have no uncertainty on estimating the model dynamics, it means that you're given a frames of, let's say, Atari games and sequence of actions, you're able to perfectly tell me what is the future uh, frame. So it means that you know the model dynamics, like how the environment works. And if you use perfect model or perfect like simulator, perfect engine of the, the game and do rollout, no matter you have uncertainty over Q function or you have like uh, you have some estimation of the Q function. As long as you don't have the exact Q function, this approach can be suboptimal. Okay. Yeah, but, but it's like uh, quite interesting. Uh, so and so then, the uh, and uh, I I love this work because um, this uh, idea of learning the generative model of let's say Atari games and uh, doing rollout on that, it's super, super expensive in the sense uh, both time-wise and also compute-wise. Time-wise is super expensive because you, well, for me, it was, uh, we t trained a, a generative adversarial, I mean, we deployed like generative adversarial techniques to, to train the model because you want to make sure that if the model is a stochastic, you're gonna capture that. And, uh, and also, you want to come up with a generative model which outputs high fidelity uh, frames and it doesn't do bad things. We can just pause there for one second. You, you mentioned okay. if it was, there was, um, it was stochastic. So does yes. this model capture? That was one of my questions about this paper, actually. If your oh. environment has some randomness in it, like enemies show up at random times or the result of something is random, how does a GATS approach handle that stochasticity in the environment? Oh, that's a, a absolutely great question. Uh, GAT works like uh, it's like uh, how can it's like literally it's super close to conditional or what's it called contextual GAN, I guess it's called or conditional GAN. Uh, 
in GANs, you can you have a random seed. So you have a in generative adversarial networks, you draw a random Gaussian, let's say, noise or uniform noise, some no, some some noise, and fit that noise to the generator, and generator generates you an image or whatever data points you you would like to call it. There's another version of uh, uh, this uh, zoo of GAN uh, works, which uh, receives a Gaussian, so receives a random variable or the noise, and also you can give uh, context. You want to say, okay, generate me an image of a dog, and you just give a context of dog, and a random noise it generates an image of a dog. Okay. What we are doing here is we feed last four frames to the generator. Also, we feed a random uh, noise to the generator, and ask, and also we tell we tell the generator what action we are going to take, and the generator is supposed to generate the next frame. And if the next frame is coming from uh, is like uh, coming from some distribution, and the environment, if the environment is deterministic, you can ignore the 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 noise you add. Okay, because given the last four frames. And uh, action, uh, you should be deterministic to right. like out with the the next frame. But, but if you the have the random latent, so you can get yes, random exactly. random latent. I but see. The, the games that we tried, they, they were all quite deterministic, and didn't we didn't see any need for that. But it's built in in the architecture of the the model. Yeah. But the the, the thing is, we all know training generative adversarial networks is quite hard, despite the fact that the data we use is quite doesn't change it's like the data set is fixed but in uh, reinforcement learning as you mentioned uh, like uh, i think five minutes ago the distribution of the samples you gather over time changes so you need to, your generative model needs to adapt to these changes so it's like it's not you have ImageNet or not image you have celebay or you have mnist you want to generate samples of mnist it's like you the distribution of the samples you observe changes because your policy has changed. So it's quite a difficult task to find and find the right model and high parameter to do that, which costs a lot of time, human time. And then the second extensive part is if you want to do rollout, you're doing rollout on the GPU, right? In a serial manner. And and if you do rollouts of let's say if you let's say you want to do a simple thing Monte Carlo tree search we don't know you don't want to do Monte Carlo tree you want to build a whole tree so if you build a tree of depth like ten and you have let's say like pong tree actions the number of uh, like node leaf nodes you're gonna produce is gonna be like three to the power of ten right and for each state when you want to make a decision if you do rollout you need to make three to the power of ten almost uh, order of three to the power of ten computation which is killing for example if you run pong that's if you do the full tree right yeah full tree if once you train up a little bit then you don't have to do the full tree anymore right absolutely you don't need to ha you don't have to do the full tree like but it's, it's still it's, if it's depth 10 you need to if you want to just look at one trajectory it's going to be 10 extra computation right so I'll, I'll, I'll admit, I've been working on the Palmerman environment, which is a NeurIPS competition environment. Oh, sweet. I was thinking about, so I have, I, had, I, I have an agent, but I was thinking it would be cooler if I could run expert iteration on this environment. Now, Palmerman has a lot in common with Atari. 
So I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool if I could do, or this is maybe, I don't know, nine months ago. And I started sketching out how, and I, and I came to realize that I would need something, something vaguely like what you're talking about in this paper, but I was very intimidated by the amount of work it would take to build that. Yeah. So I didn't proceed with that project. Well, I'm happy you didn't do it. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, another thing that I'm happy is like this paper, like a year ago or two years ago when I was talking about this negative result to people, people were like either shocked or would not agree what I'm saying until I was convincing them and then became super shocked. You mean they, they, they thought it would work? Yeah, they, I mean, everyone, it was kind of common sense, except I have one friend who is like, who's that, who's been at, he's a senior, he used to be senior person at DeepMind, now he's a head of open, sorry, what is it called? Google Brain in Paris. And he was the only person who told me that he knew it doesn't work. But the rest of people I talked to, they were like, no, either I am wrong or like something's wrong, <laughs> but, um, or they were shocked. And then if they thought I'm wrong, I convinced them and then they become shocked. So it was like common sense that, or common knowledge that this approach should work. And, uh, but recently I realized that whenever I talk to new people, they are like, they all know that this approach is doomed to fail. And I'm happy to get this response because that's what I wanted. Can, can you help us summarize yeah. briefly what is that reason that we can understand why this approach can't work? Because it seems like, I mean, the question that comes to my mind is, why is this so different from Alpha uh, Alpha Zero? If, oh, if your Alpha model Zero. was, if your model really was really good, then what is the difference remaining? Okay, so Alpha Zero has really, really deep tree. Okay, uh, the tree is deep enough that the contribution of the queue function using the nodes uh, is not going to be that high, but it it might be, but the, the, the depth is too high. But uh, the idea why it's not, it doesn't work well, uh, is it's too conservative. Let's imagine you have, you're, you're walking by a curve, okay? And at each time, so if you're able to roll out, let's say, a curb is in uh, your right hand side and if you hit the curb you might break your leg okay if you are able to roll out in uh, the model that you have in your brain people call it imagination like yeah let's become a neuroscientist for a little bit. Uh, so you in your brain you have a model of the world and you can imagine if you go to a step to right you might hit the curb and you hit and you break your uh, leg and this is not a good action right but in uh, Atari if there is a curb or is a ditch that if I, if I go there, I, I'm going to break my leg, I wouldn't go there. Therefore, I, did, I, I don't have this experience in my replay buffer. Therefore, if my Q function wanted to go to that curb for some reason, and if I prevent it, therefore, my Q function does not see the outcome of its own decisions. Okay, and if my Q function doesn't see the outcome of the decision, doesn't learn that going right is bad, or going even to that state that I'm at, which is two, two steps mm. away from the curve, is dangerous. Is a dangerous state. I should not even be there. But my Q function doesn't learn that going there is bad. I'm just kind of preventing that bad event to happen. But since I'm not experiencing it, my Q function doesn't know that's a bad thing. Yeah, that's the issue. So is this in the paper you mentioned? Um GATS causing a delay in reward propagation? Is that, yes. is that yes. what you're talking about? Yeah, here? exactly. If I was able, 
if I was not using this uh, imagination or this rollout uh, in the mo in the model of the environment I have in mind, I would try to go right, and I hurt myself, and then I learned that going right is bad, and my Q function gets updated, right? But if I don't do it, I keep walking along the curve for long until, let's say, if I do epsilon greedy with some low probability, I'm gonna hit my, uh, I'm gonna break my leg, right? Or like I hit myself. If I hit myself there, like in 10 steps in the future, I get a, I receive a negative reward there, but it takes 10 steps back to realize that at the beginning, I should not even get close to the curve. But so that's like the same as DQN. Isn't that the same as DQN? Because in DQN, you would, um, I mean, here you're still using the replay buffer. You're putting yes. your, are you putting your imagined states into the replay buffer as if they were real? Like okay. the Dynac the thing? If we do not put the imagine uh, rollout or like the, the, the rollout in the, well, I would avoid calling it imagine for the machine, but let's be easy to today and let's say, uh, if I do not put those imagine states in the replay buffer, what would happen is if I get a negative reward in the future, it takes a lot like longer for the current state to know that this state is bad. But even if uh, you put the imagine states in the replay buffer, you can construct a problem that, again, the same delay would happen, which uh, extensively we uh, described it in the paper, which was also cool. So I, I, I'm not sure I fully followed that part. Like, if Alpha Zero doesn't use a replay buffer, does it? Okay, Alpha Zero does have a replay buffer, but it doesn't seem to come up very often. And then there was a, a paper um, more recently called Model-Based Reinforcement Learning for Atari, yeah. by Kaiser et al. 2019. We, we actually mentioned this when we were talking or before the interview. Um, that uses some kind of LSTM-based discrete latent um, component to predict the next frame. But they're not... I don't, I don't think they're predicting the full... Well, well they're not, I don't think they're using pixel space. They're using some kind of latent space. Looking a little closer at the model-based reinforcement learning for Atari paper by Kaiser et al., it is using latents but the latents are also used to predict the pixels in the next frame. So I guess the truth is somewhere between these two. Their network is kind of complicated, and at this point, I can't say I understand the details of how it works. Um, and they got good results with this, what they called simple. Yeah. It seems kind of like a very similar approach to yours, because they are doing a model based. You're doing, both are model based. I don't think they're building the full tree. So, yeah, that's actually an interesting paper uh, on I like it, in the sense that, well, yeah, do LSTM. Uh, in our work, we do both LSTM, or well, we call it RNN, and also feed forward. And in our work, we we can do Monte Carlo research on the tree or do the gradient. What they do, do the RNN for the model, and they do policy gradient for the for the for coming up with the best action. So they are doing those things we suggested. And uh, but I do agree they perform well. That part, which is the part that I well, I talked to one of the authors, who is a friend of mine, and I don't agree with the fact that uh, they outperform anything because we usually run uh, a policy. We run uh, reinforcement learning algorithms that we design on, let's say, Atari for 200 or 50 minutes. Depends on what you call time step, but 
50 million times a step, 1 billion times a step, okay, to get some uh, performance, okay? At the beginning, few times steps, the, like, like, let's say, first 1,000 times steps, the agent doesn't do much, okay? And uh, maybe if, let's say, for Pong, it was making reward of minus 21, in the first 100,000 times three, it might get reward of minus 19, 20, okay? So it doesn't do much in that re regime. And, uh, and uh, as, as I also said in, in, uh, in our paper, is that, is like, if I learn the model dynamics, if I'm able to roll out in that model, like model and I'm able to roll out for 10 times stuff, I might avoid some uh, local bad events. I might not hit the curve. And also, if there's an apple like in 10 steps away from me, I'm going to reach that. Okay, but this is going to be locally being good, right? But I'm not going to be globally good. And what their results shows is like in the first 100,000 time steps, they're outperforming the other algorithm. But it's, it's not what we, we care about it, but we don't care about outperforming algorithms in first 100,000 time steps that much. Uh, if your performance is from minus like 1000 to minus 985 and this is the improvement you're making but the actual performance gain we carry is like few thousand so if you in few first few thousand times steps you 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 do it like what happens is like at the very first time like very beginning 100,000 times steps you make a jump yeah you you boost up you wrap up but after that, you don't do much. And that's one of the reasons they did not go beyond 10,000 time steps while almost all the standard works out there, excluding mine. Like, um, I do not run things uh, for five, 50 million times or 200 million times steps. But like that's the way people do. want to make sure like, if you run an algorithm, it's going like, to perform well in the future, not just for a few time steps. It's going to... It has higher speed of learning at the very, very beginning because of this tree structure that I was talking about. But after that, it doesn't do much. And they, when they run it for one million times steps, the, the performance, like the improvement vanishes or plateau. Hmm. So it's like, um, it's interesting work. It's a work that we were warning that it's not going to work. Do it. They did it. And uh, it's great, but this is the problem. Like, if you do tree search or you do like a constructed JSON model, you're you're gonna wrap up very fast at the very beginning, but you're after that you're not gonna do much. Hmm. Okay. So, what would be the next step for this GATS line of work? What that's would you suggest a, would be the next place to look? That's an excellent question. Um, well, there is a huge interests among researchers to do model based on model free and uh, one of I think uh, your uh, first uh, guess in your show also uh, extensive work on this uh, area and uh, but it's it's harder than what we thought it's like uh, it's it needs it needs really we need to spend time to figure out how to use it and uh, I'm glad that I did it until I told everyone, hey, don't do it that way, because it was quite a straightforward thing to, thing to do. 
then I'm, uh, it was great to tell people don't do it, but what we should do afterward? Certainly, there, when we run uh, Q-learning or like uh, DQN on Atari games, there are many, many signals we generate, okay? And uh, which we might not use, as I said, there are unsupervised signals. There are like, well, maybe unsupervised signal is the wrong thing to use, the wrong term, but bear with me. These transitions, we can use them to learn the model. But who said that model-free is less sample efficient than model-based? Well, no one proved that. People say it. I would say, okay, prove it to me. Oh, well, that's interesting. Well, no one proved that. People keep saying it, but it's like not true because <laughs> we don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say it's not true, but what we have seen, both theoretically and empirically, it doesn't, uh, it sounds cool to say model free is uh, less sample efficient than model based, but well, no, we don't know. No one showed that. And theoretically, we know that they are quite like, uh, you can uh, do it almost similar to, I mean, if Q learning has the same sample efficiency as uh, model based uh, approaches, and at least for tabular setting. And for, uh, uh, for continuous setups, people are working up, including myself, and we are seeing that the uh, sample complexity is almost the same. But that's the interesting point that we also discussed extensively in the in the paper. Let's imagine you wanna you, you just don't wanna maximize your uh, your uh, expected return. You wanna be also safe locally. Okay, if you're if you learn the model and if you're able to roll out. You know what would happen if you make some certain actions, right? So it helps a lot in safety, which is like amazing uh, use case of it. I'm saying, hey, in order to, you want to combine a model-based and model-free, great, but do not aim for outperforming model-free methods because, well, uh, why? Why you would think like that? Our paper shows don't think like that, like or at least don't take it that easy. Be be more precise. But if you want to be safe, if you don't have the model of the environment, you can do a lot of things. The third thing we showed, which was astonishing, <laughs> I love that experimental study. Let's imagine you have a punk, you have a game punk. Okay, you remember the game punk? For sure, yeah, I, I enjoyed yeah. it as a kid. So, <laughs> so in the game punk, we have two paddles and a ball, right? And we control one paddle, and opponent controls another paddle. And we play game and uh, we run DQN and we win. Okay, so now what? What one experiment we have done, which was super cool, was actually I was, um, you know, Gray Marcus. Oh yeah. Uh, he's like uh, one of the critics and like amazing person in the field, and I was talking to him like right before talking to you, <laughs> like uh, like ten minutes before talking to you, and we were talking about about this example that I had. Um, I follow, I follow him on Twitter, yeah. Oh, well, I was following uh, on him on Twitter on, on, until I, uh, I met him in person today in the morning. And <laughs> we, had, we were talking about this example that he was uh, also have. He had some other examples as well. So the example is as follows. I have a Pong, the game Pong, and I have two paddles. I control one paddle. And after like five million time steps, I master this game. And I'm able to score 21. And then we did, thanks to... Uh, Marlos, my friend uh, who's at uh, Brain now, and uh, Mark Bremer and other folks, they put out a new version of ALE, which allows you to change the mode of the game. Okay? Means that you can change the difficulty of the game or 
the dynamics of the game. For Pong, when you change the mode of the game, what happens is uh, the, the, the width of the opponent's paddle get, get halved. Okay, so it's like the size of the opponent's paddle get halved, so the game becomes easier, right? If you have a DQN model, which is able to score 21 on the normal game, okay. and then suddenly, which is yeah, 21 scores the cap, and suddenly I change the mode of the game and I like have the size of the opponent's paddle. Mm-hmm. And the game is much easier because you can score easier, right? And if I apply the same model I learned on this game, what would be the score of the DQM model on this easier game? I mean, the same mo- the, the model you trained, which was scoring 21, now you apply it directly on this game. And uh, surprisingly, the score of this uh, DQM model, instead of keeping to be like 21, as you, we were expecting, it became like minus 21. It means like it totally broke the the system the system was not able to function at all is, is that really a problem with rl or is that a problem with these types of function approximators because the function approximator if it sees a scene with a slightly smaller paddle it's it thinks it's a completely different scene than than the scene with everything the same except for the larger paddle yeah. right so uh, right? one thing i if you don't mind i rephrase your uh, question a little bit uh, it's not a problem with reinforcement learning. Reinforcement learning is a general field. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it. It's like it's amazing. It's the best. I just but, mean if you, if you look at the agent as a combination of RL principles and function approximator. If you your aim is to maximize reward, okay, and you're using function approximation, there is no reason for the agent to look at to to be able also to work on uh, the game that the paddle is like half or bigger. It just didn't learn. It, maybe there's no reason to learn any logic behind. Uh, uh, I'm using Marcus like uh, Gray's like uh, language. Now. There's no logic. There's no need to learn the logic there to solve the game. Okay, so uh, yeah, as you said, if I it has no semantics. It doesn't yeah, learn any yeah, semantics, yeah, right? Yeah, it doesn't yeah. know that's a paddle. It doesn't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just it just has a bunch of ma- a matrix Absolutely, of values, yeah. and yeah. any change in that suddenly means that the answers are no longer relevant right yeah, like, I mean, yeah, yeah. we could imagine some better function approximator than these cnns which somehow look for some have some priors or some have some better sense of objects or something like that that could get around this yes yes uh, in fact uh, uh the marlos i mentioned a friend of mine he uh, tried to regularize the qn and show that it can help a little bit but i mean vicarious yeah, there was a paper by Vicarious called uh, Schema Networks that uh, uh, they tried exactly this on, not Pong, but that that uh, the one like Pong when you're trying to break bricks. Breakout. Breakout. And yeah, yeah. Uh, they showed some small change in breakout yeah. made, made the standard reinforcement learning actually not work, but their method was able to overcome these small changes. I think there was another one about uh, human priors or something where mm-hmm. um, the... the the RL algorithms were able to play these games just as well when they were replaced with noisy images that made no sense to a human. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah it didn't matter to DQN, right? Yeah, it just, didn't uh, care. Like, for this RL method, it doesn't matter because uh, you didn't specifically ask for it. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, you can call it an issue, but this is not the thing you ask to be there at the beginning. Like You ask, hey, maximize the return, okay? You didn't have to learn semantics. 
But this this is one surprising thing, as, as you also mentioned in that uh, work, uh, which shows that if you move the paddle of the brake cap a little bit up, it breaks. And this information I'm talking about are the things that I just learned from Gray, <laughs> he told me. Uh, but the second issue was, after uh, changing this game setting by just making the size of the opponent uh, paddle smaller, the amount of time steps we needed to train the DQM was almost famous starting from scratch. So we couldn't adapt mm. to immediately. But back into the use of model base, it took our model 3,000 samples to adapt to this new domain. So for our DQM agent to adapt, it needed to 2 million or 3 million samples again to adapt. But for our model based uh, so for our uh, like the generative model to adapt to this domain, it just cost us like three thousand samples. So the mo- the ga- the model itself, um, yes. the generative model was adapting very quickly, but very the, very quickly. The Q network was adapting slowly. Yes. So now what I'm advocating is, if you want to use model and model free approaches and model based approaches together, we might not gain much at least easily by aiming for maximizing return directly, but if we want to secure like safety, if we want to have adaptation, if I'm going from like, if I'm interacting with the environment, which has some sort some set of reward, and if I change from one environment to another environment, but the environment dynamics stay same, but the reward function changes. I don't need to learn, if I use model free approaches, I need to do the whole thing again. But if I have model-based approach, I just need to change the reward function, which I learned. So if I have adapting to new domain or, I mean, general transfer learning problem or safety or many, many other things that the model is going to give us additional information compared to the Q function, there we can do, we can use models a lot. Well, you, you might ask whether I am working on this type of research. No, because this type of research that costs a lot and I don't have that much of money to burn <laughs> on GPU. But if people out there want to do model-based and model-free, please read this paper carefully and uh, and try to do like safety, try to do dom- adaptation, try to do like uh, this uh, change in the dynamics. This kind of stuff are really important. If you learn a model, you can come up with a better like uh, semantic of the environment. But um, if you want to do directly, if you directly aim for maximizing return, um, then this paper shows that it's not uh, that easy, at least. I don't see a way to use model based on model feed altogether to improve upon sample complexity. And also, mm. theoretically, we don't, no one showed that model free is less sample efficient. That's a really interesting point. Well, I, I really am just naturally drawn to model based methods um and i i find model free i just never liked it i don't know i i think if i really ask myself why it's because can't reuse any component like you said um and it seems like a waste of compute if you learn a policy for something anything changes you have to throw it out um when you build a model i mean like things like gpt2 for example the text model or the language model from openai so much compute went into building that that original model, but then it becomes very cheap for us to fine tune it for different tasks. I mean, to me, that's a model for AI, or that's a an approach to AI that makes sense to have this the massive compute in these reusable um, artifacts 
and yeah. then we have we use only small compute to to do the work the the work uh, to customize it. Otherwise, we're just burning um, burning cycles on and on for yeah, it yeah. seems like not very much gain. That's true. Um, and I, I also really like planning. Uh, yeah, yeah I've spent awesome. some time on planning algorithms long ago, and I and I and planning can be so efficient. But to plan, you need a model. So um, you definitely need these things to work together. Yeah, one one uh, interesting uh, aspect of this uh, model based idea is if you are able to come up with a like try to learn a model of the um, all the uh, Atari games, then what you are gonna end up you can you can come with a representation. Okay, we we use uh, the first few layers of like uh, these models we train on ImageNet and we reuse that uh, representation for different tasks, right? But we don't do it in RL. But if you learn a model. Hopefully, you can get a representation that you can use for uh, different problems or transfer between games. So it's uh, going to be like, instead of like redoing the learning over and over for each problem or each paper or each work you're doing or each homework, you just use this representation and then you build your stuff on top of it. That's mm -hmm. what uh, we did for BDQN. Sorry, can you explain that connection to BDQN again? So in BDQN, we say... And also after BDK and I had another work on linear bandits, we say, okay, if we we have this amazing work on which is amazing idea called deep learning, and uh, to me one of the great great benefit that the deep learning has provided is like this representation learning. Okay, so if I'm um, able to learn a representation of like the frame of the game, and then uh, my Q function is going to be linear function on this representation, then I can deploy whatever we know about linear models on the top of this representation, right? I, I, I follow you now, yeah. Yeah, let's, let's consider like DQN. DQN, you have multiple convolutional layers, and then you have linear layers on the top, and the Q function at the end is linear transformation of the feature representation at the bottom, right? Mm. If you know that, if you know how to deal with the Q functions which are linear in some given feature representation, you can use those techniques to uh, apply those techniques on uh, on uh, the settings that feature representation comes from uh, at Deep Neural Network. Sorry, that representation at the last layer is kind of dependent on the policy, right? Yeah, that's a thing. It's dependent on how did it get there. It's not it's not just summarizing the game. It's also summarizing the behavior of this agent. Yes, it does. It does. Yeah. So, so how we could ever separate those to get okay, a genera we general... We cannot. Uh, mm -hmm. Unless we wait for one or two years that I prove that we can. <laughs> uh, but I haven't... I mean, I'm not working on it now, but I know uh, that I'm going to write uh, um, uh, my piece on that. But... What I was, uh, what I'm advoca advocating for, uh, idea for BDKN is like, okay, let's imagine I give you a feature representation of, uh, let's say, for uh, environment in a, in an RL problem, and uh, I tell you the optimal Q function is linear in this feature representation, okay, and I tell you this feature representation is fixed. Okay, so you are not learning the feature representation. You have, your optimal Q function is linear in the feature representation I gave it to you. Okay. And now I ask you, hey, go and do re like uh, come up with the algorithm, which, given this knowledge, is able to uh, 
do efficient exploration exploitation. Okay. That's and, what you uh, did, right? That's your yeah, previous yeah, paper. Yeah. So for what I did here was like, if you give me the fixed feature representation, how on earth am I gonna use it? We didn't know before this work how to use it for for uh, like a general problem. Like in this work, the action space can be anything uh, as long as it's closed. And uh, I mean, it can be continuous, it can be infinity, it can be like big. And a state of space is also should be closed, but it can be uh, continuous, it can be finite, infinite. So it's like these are two. It's like general in general. So we show that in this work, if you give me the feature for a presentation and you tell me that the optimal Q function is linear in this feature presentation, we show that how we can uh, come up with the efficient exploration exploitation algorithm. Which is able to learn, which is able to give us a reasonable regret bound. So the current regret bound is really amazing and nice. Uh, has some uh, bad dependence on the horizon of the game, but I'm still working on it. But but this I, I, but this is I think because of the analysis needs to be tightened. But the algorithm I think is not is quite right. And uh, we show that for this algorithm you get a regret bound which is gonna be a square root of number of interaction you have, uh, uh, number of episodes in the game, okay? So it was, uh, to me, it was a huge improvement in the sense that I now I know better how to do exploration exploitation in, uh, in uh, model-free reinforcement learning when the Q function is linear, optimal Q function is linear in some function representation. So now we were like, okay. And uh, also we knew how to do optimism based on this. Uh, idea and we also showed how to do Thompson sampling and uh, but as you said in practice no one is going to give you that uh, that feature presentation unless there is a universal feature presentation people have learned but we don't have it yet some of my friends are working on it uh, but if I don't have a good feature presentation what I can do I can imagine the feature presentation I have is okay and I apply this algorithm that theoretically I show is good on this feature presentation and come up with a better policy. And now we use this policy, as you said, is going this policy explore a good part of the state space and use this policy to learn a better feature presentation. It's quite an alternative maximization. I fix the feature presentation, I learn a good Q function and then fix that Q function to learn a feature presentation and then keep like these two are gonna mm. compensate for each other. Well, theoretically, I have not shown that this approach is, is guaranteed to work, which we should wait for one or two years. Either I do it or my colleagues, they do. But it, the, the, I, I, we know that this is actually uh, converges based on what I know about deep learning these days, what I learned recently, like last two years. So they did something like that in model-based RL for Atari, the Kaiser paper, they do they did a loop where they keep learning relearning the model and then learning the policy and then evaluate and then relearn yes, yes, the model. So they yeah, they're, they're, maybe that loop is yeah. even in the in the like GAT work you, you also as we talked at the beginning you need when you 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 collect new when you find a, you update your policy, you end up to different part of the state space and collect samples and use those samples to update your model. So you keep updating your model and model changes over time. Just trying to connect some of these to get these pieces together. Like your uh, your BDQN paper is looking at the uncertainty in the Q values specifically, yeah. but I guess we also have uncertain. We could have uncertainty in the model, yeah. 
as well as in terms of in some some areas of the state space, we're not really sure what the next state was going to be. Absolutely. And that seems like it, it's, it's maybe, is GATS maybe not modeling that uncertainty? Is that right? Uh, GATS, uh, the, the, in GATS, the aim was not providing a better exploration or exploitation algorithm. In GATS, the aim was to, at the beginning, the aim was to come up with a better policy. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter how much it's gonna cost time-wise or uh, like money-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, money-wise, I, I had a cap, but time-wise, also had a cap. But uh, but time, I mean time of the game. Uh, for that, the the sample complexity was not the main concern in BDQN. Sample complexity was the actual everything. Like uh, sample complexity was the actually driving uh, driving force for that work. In GATS, we were saying that even if your model doesn't have any uncertainty, it's doomed to work. But if you wanted to work, if you wanted to use gas, let's imagine that we didn't know, like, let's imagine we want to use gas and we want to use uncertainty on model. There is, I think it's, a, it's one of the chapters in GATS paper, which shows how, to, how we can use the uncertainty in the model, which actually I like it a lot because the way we train the generative model for GATS is using Wasserstein distance, okay? And Wasserstein distance gives us uh, a distance between two distributions, okay? Mm-hmm. So distribution of the reality and distribution that my generative model generated, okay? This one is a model mismatch, okay? So what we, what the discriminator in GATS, what it does, it looks at what is, what is the distribution of the real transition and what is the output of the generative model, and how far these are in the Wasserstein metric, uh, like not Wasserstein metric, right? in the Wasserstein distance sense. And you can call that one model uncertainty. And we observe that for if we show new, if you if you show like a bunch of transitions in the model, the, the model tra- learns how to produce those transitions and uh, the distance. You get is really is going to be really low, but if you show part of the state space that the agent was not there or has been there like for a few times time steps, the distance the the Wasserstein distance in that part of the state space is, is gonna be big. Okay, so if you use this notion, you can uh, make sure that your agent is gonna and you put this quantity in the reward, you are encouraging your agent to go to to not only places that yeah, receives high reward, but also to places that uh, the model is uncertain. Means the Wasserstein distance or like distance between due distribution is like high. So but doesn't it, the Wasserstein distance, doesn't it, doesn't it require you to have the original sample to compare your well, we do have original sample samples, against? Right? So you're saying you have original samples for every part of the state space? No, no, no. Like uh, when you go to a, to, a, to, a, to a state and you can ask, your genetic model, hey, what is the next step, right? So what is the next frame? And also you come, you go to that to like you to make a decision. And you also you observe and then you you do your your generated sample and you compare right then. You compare and this is going to be implicit reward you're gonna add there. Okay, so you also you have a real reward you get from like a the, curiosity reward. Well, I wouldn't call it curiosity, but it's going to be some sort of uncertainty that you're gonna add because. 
yeah, in in uh, in um, in reinforcement, like sorry, in theoretical point, some po- theoretical point of view, we don't call it curiosity. It's um, concentration of the measure, and this is different a little bit. And um, yeah, the, the, but but you kind of intuitively encourage the the agent to go to places that this distance is high. So you go there more okay. often. Okay. But but just to, to, to look at that a little more, you, you can only check the Wasserstein distance with the, with the very next sample that you're looking yeah. at, right? You can't you can't grow your tree down to ten levels and look at the tenth level and say, Oh, that that node on the tenth level I have high uncertainty about. You can't do that until oh, you get there. No, right? Oh, um, so we you you okay, so you at any state you are after making a decision, you go to new state, okay? And for that new, that for this transition, you can see how uncertain you are about this new state, right? Just for one level. For one like level. Your uncertainty only carries one level yeah, down, right? So if okay. I call that one, that uncertainty, the, the reward in that point, and then I learn another DQM model on just this intrinsic reward, okay? So what is going to happen is, like, if I'm uncertain, like, in some state that is going to happen like 20 next 20 times steps my the dq model the, the second dq model i learned on this like intrinsic the uh, implicit reward is going to guide me to go there so mm-hmm. it's like it, you basically learn another dqn but this time that this dqn is quite on the reward based on the uncertainty you get uh, from this uh, Wasserstein mm-hmm. distance I mean, Schmidt Huber wrote a paper about this in 1992 really? about mm-hmm. agents agents that had intrinsic, uh, he called it curiosity, that would explore an environment and learn all the dynamics of the environment. I was a little off with the date. It was actually 1991, and the paper is called Curious Model Building Control Systems by Schmidt Huber. You'll find links to this paper and all the others that we mention in the show notes at talkrl.com. So the th- there are two things. One is if you look at uh, a paper called uh, UCRL2 or Upper Confidence Bound Reinforcement Learning came out 2010 by uh, a set of uh, amazing theory- theorists like uh, Peter Ohr and uh, Josh and Ronald. They showed how to use uh, uncertainty and uh, how how that uncertainty affects your affects your uh, q function the estimation and how how you're supposed to use that uncertainty and they exactly showed and they proved the first uh order optimal i guess it was the first one maybe it wasn't but it was uh, the, the 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 grounding work in uh tabular mdp on regret analysis so okay. in that work they show how to use it in my work i exactly use the recipe they provide which is provably correct, but for my case was Wasserstein distance. For their case, was actually concentration measure in like uh, in a, in a, in a L two metric space. But yeah, that's enough. Okay. But yeah, if you are interested in like using the uncertainty, oh, that's another uh, cool idea. Then, uh, if you want to use model model based and model free for reinforcement learning, you can use the model to to estimate the uncertainty for you, which that uncertainty is like. Really nice. In some sense, like Wasserstein distance. And uh, if you can show how to use Wasserstein distance uncertainty for <clears throat> for exploration, then you know how to algorithmically use it. But it's another use of uh, model based approaches in reinforcement learning. They can compute the uncertainty for you. So I'm kind of like theorist 
practitioner, mostly serious, and if I, I've been trying to be helpful to this as a community, and if it's going to help people to direct their, their way of doing research, or the philosophy of doing research, or like the type of problems they work on, and how critical they should be to their own research. If they, I mean, I, I would love to like share these things with uh, other people, and like uh, especially for with uh, with junior people to get a better understanding of what they're dealing with. Like, RL is a hard thing, and if you commit to it, you need to be careful. So, can I ask you, how do you see Ara looking in, like, say, three years or ten years from now? Will it be completely different, or will it just be, like, a little bit better than it is now? How do you see it evolving? So, one thing is happening now is, and it's going to take over, is we... Empirical study is going to be more realistic. It's, uh, it's going like, to move on from uh, uh, like uh, Atari games or the Mujuko and go to like um, real work, m- more realistic problems and um, try to come up with, uh, try to like solve actually real world problems that we need to solve. So the empirical is going to be that, that case. But uh, theoretically, it's going to advance a lot. Recently, like in the last few weeks, there were like many, many works on uh, policy grading that I've been reading. And, and also, I have one work uh, like uh, JMLR on this topic. And uh, theoretically, we're going to advance the field a lot. And uh, But still, we are going to have a lot of people working on like uh, principles of, uh, or like, uh, like first, level understanding of these problems in like two examples again on Atari games or like uh, Great Wars or Mujuko for uh, providing better understanding but in like 10 years we are gonna have a lot of uh, our uh, contribution in uh, in like super realistic real world problems yeah that's my take what what are you excited about working on when you're looking forward, what do you what do you plan to do to focus on next and for the next few years? Uh, my plan mainly is uh, to I, I've been the last two three years I've been sorry last two years I've been uh, focusing a lot on the empirical side of uh, reinforcement learning. Before that, I was like 100 percent doing theory. Last two years, I've been working on theory and practice. I think I learned. Uh, good chunk of uh, experience uh, from interacting with uh, practitioners and like working on these problems that I now I can spend more time doing uh, and developing like theoretical understanding of the problems. And uh, one thing that I am excited about is taking the current methods and uh, not current, like not method, current principles and understanding we have uh, in reinforcement learning and adapt them to the problems that are in uh, in more immediate uh, importance uh, than self-driving car <laughs> uh, is like healthcare. I, I'm really excited about uh, using these methods in uh, healthcare. I'm also in uh, which 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 makes me to re- kind of redesign or rewrite many many of the principles for healthcare problems. Like, uh, healthcare problems are quite different from the problem formulation we have been thinking so far. I'm going to, as a faculty in uh, next year when I'm going to build my group, 
it's going to be like devoted uh, a lot on uh, healthcare problems, less in empirically, more from theoretical point of view and providing a deeper understanding of what it should look like. And uh, also interested in uh, uh, th th there's another part that it's in reinforcement learning quite uh, uh, raw and we haven't worked on it. It's like uh, control theory. Uh, control, like control theory, has developed for many many years, but the statistical like understanding of like um, empirical processes, these things they came out like twenty years ago, three years ago. They 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 they, they haven't been incorporated in the study of uh, control theory that deeply. Though there have been many control theories that I know they are great, and they they most of those things they have developed them. But uh, they haven't been incorporated in in, uh, in control theory to come up with the uh, controllers that are sample efficient. So this is another part of my future research, uh, which is going to be on uh, these topics of like uh, providing a better understanding in control theory or in general adaptive control, which is kind of. But if I say stuff stuff reinforcement learning, I make might make people mad, but uh, that's the case. <laughs> That sounds amazing. I can't wait to read all about it. Uh, I, I think our time has come to a close. Uh, Dr. Aziza Denashelli, thank you so much for your time today. I've learned so much uh, from talking with you and from reading your work, and I'm sure I'm going to learn more uh, from you reading your, your future work. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and your time with all of us today. My pleasure, Robin, and thank you so much for, for having me today. That's our episode for today, folks. Be sure to check talkrl.com for more great episodes. 